0: I was back there studying and got so lost in my study that I lost track of time until I heard your voices out here. So I wasn't set up when you were coming in. So, have you had a good morning? Nobody's had a good morning. All right. Well, I've got just one announcement this morning. Um, Just a reminder that next week... We will have our special guest speaker, Um, Nancy Fitzgerald, will be here, and she's going to be talking about a topic that we all deal with, the whys in life. When things happen and you say, God, why did you let this happen? Or why didn't you stop this from happening? Why is there suffering in the world? All those questions that all of us have asked at one time or another. That's what her topic is going to be. So I would encourage you all to be here. If you've never heard her speak before, you will not want to miss her. And I would encourage you to invite friends to come with you. If you've got some friends, um, we'd love to have them. We, We will not have extra babysitting available or children's classes. For those of you who have kids in the program, we have a regular morning for them like we do every week. But we won't have extra uh, child care. So if you invite friends with kids, who, or friends who have kids, they need to find other arrangements for their kids for that day. But we would love to have them join us, okay? And you will come directly into the sanctuary next week. Instead of going to your small groups, we'll come in here first, okay? Is that, is that me? Oh, thank you. whoever said that, thank you. It takes a village. Yes, men can come. They're, they're welcome to join you too for next week. Um, okay, I think that's all of the announcements. Just a shout out to our snowbirds who might be listening online today as well as our night group. I keep forgetting to to mention them too, so they are listening online, some of them, so good morning to you as well. Um, last week we looked at chapter 10 and the beginning of this interlude between the 6th and the 7th trumpet judgments. Remember we saw uh, that our John saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, and he announced that there would be no more delay. When the 7th trumpet sounded, it would bring the final bold judgments. And the mystery of God would be accomplished. That means that God's plan would be brought to full completion. And all the predictions of the Old Testament and the New Testaments that were, you know, giving you bits and pieces of it will be finally completely fulfilled. And the tribulation period would rapidly come to a close. And Jesus would finally return. We also learn that there are some things that God simply doesn't reveal to us. But we also know that he has revealed everything we need to know to come to know him and to follow him and to be saved. John was told to take and eat a scroll that was in the angel's hand and to completely absorb its message. And then to continue his commission to tell the whole world about this twofold message from God, both the bitter and the sweet. Remember? We were reminded that like John, we have been given an assignment. Jesus has given each one of us a crucial mission to share God's message of grace and the warning of coming judgment with the world. The message of grace is sweet. We don't mind telling people that part, do we? But the message of judgment is bitter. But we also are commanded to share that part as well. We can't just share one part and not the other, because that would not be a true gospel. We also learned that before we can become a spokesperson for God, we, like John need to eat the Word of God and digest it ourselves. And we talked about five ways that we can eat or take in God's Word. Do you remember what they are? Remember we used our fingers. Why don't you say it with me? Listen to the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Meditate on the Word of God. Memorize the Word of God. Okay, we kind of got the last two out of order, but that's okay, as long as we're doing it. Um, And then, after we are doing all those things, we're taking it in and digesting it for ourselves and starting to apply it and do it, we're supposed to do one more thing. Share the Word of God with others to pass on that gospel message. Great job, girls. Um... After eating and absorbing the message of the scroll, John then continued recording all the things that he saw and heard as the Lord showed him the end of the age and the completion of his plan that's to come. And today we're going to be coming to chapter 11, and this uh, long pause or this long interlude continues uh, between uh, the sixth and seventh trumpet, all the way from chapter 10, and we're going to still be in it all day today. So... Chapter 11 is going to zoom in on one part of the world, and that's Jerusalem. So if you have your Bible with you, why don't you turn with me to Revelation chapter 11, and let's see what the Lord has to teach us today. But before we do, why don't we pray and ask him to be our teacher, shall we? Father, what a privilege it is that we have to be able to come together as sisters in Christ— and open the word that you have preserved down through thousands of eight, uh, years and preserved it so that we can hold it in our hand and read it for ourselves and learn what you want us to know. We don't take that lightly, Lord. And so I'm asking, Holy Spirit, would you just calm our minds and our hearts? Um I know Satan's been alive and at work and just throwing obstacles in many of our ways to get here this morning. Just trying to get us all distracted and our panties in a bunch. But I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you will instill our minds and hearts and give us ears to hear you, Holy Spirit, as you are our teacher this morning. And we count on your promise that you will take the Word of God And teach us what you would have each one of us learn this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. All right. Did you find Revelation 11? How about we read it together? I was given a reed. This is John speaking. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar... And count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Don't measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as, they often, as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud where their en- while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who revere your name both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumbles, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So after eating the scroll... John was handed a measuring rod and was told to measure the temple of God and the altar and to count the worshipers. Now, did any of you stop and ask yourselves, what temple? What temple are we talking about? Because, see, at the time John received this revelation, there was no temple in Jerusalem anymore. The Romans had destroyed it about 25 years before he got this revelation. The Bible mentions four temples associated with Jerusalem. Two of them have been destroyed, and two of them have yet to be built. The first was Solomon's temple. Remember, David wanted to be the one to build a temple or a house for the Lord? And he said, no, you won't be able to do it, but your son Solomon will build it. So Solomon built it, but it was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Remember when they attacked them, and then they carted a lot of the Israelites and the Jews off to um, Babylon. And they were in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Then they were allowed to return to Jerusalem, and when they returned, they began to rebuild the temple under the direction of a man named Zerubbabel. And I don't know about you, but it helps, this is a little thing that I use to help me remember this, is Zerubbabel built a temple out of rubble. There's a lot of blah, 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 but that helps me remember that. Later, when Rome took control of Israel, Herod the Great, he didn't destroy the temple, but he expanded it um, and enlarged it in order to gain favor with Israel. And so this second temple became known as Herod's Temple. And this was the temple that was in Jerusalem during the days when Jesus was here on earth. But it was completely destroyed in 70 AD, just like Jesus had predicted and told his disciples in Matthew 24. So, where is the temple today? There is no Jewish temple in Jerusalem today. If you go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today, you're going to see two of the most holy Muslim sites in the world. The Dome of the Rock and the Akshala Mosque. Do we have that? Um, there you go. Some of you probably have seen this on TV, or some of you may have been, even been fortunate enough to travel to Israel. And you see that um, dome, the Golden Dome? That's the, um, the Muslim Dome of the Rock. And the Oxala Mosque is right beside that. Muslims consider this site holy because they believe that uh, Muhammad ascended to heaven here. The Jews consider it holy because that's where their temple was located. Christians consider it holy because this is the area where, obviously, there's a lot of biblical history there, but also Jesus was um, crucified just outside of the city. So it's a very religiously charged area. And in the current biblical or current political climate today, it seems impossible that Muslims would ever allow a Jewish temple to be built on the Temple Mount alongside the Dome of the Rock and the um, Akshalov Mosque. But God says there's going to be a functioning Jewish temple in the future in Jerusalem during the Tribulation. In fact, there are many preparations for the rebuilding of this temple that have already been made. The Temple Institute in Jerusalem has already made the vessels to be used in the temple. They've made the priestly garments. Uh, They've got a model of this new temple and how it will be built, and even the cornerstone has already been made and is waiting. But how the rebuilding of this temple will be possible isn't clear to us right now. It's going to take somebody with extraordinary negotiating skills to work out delicate details in this hotbed. A man like the Antichrist who the Bible says is going to win the hearts of the world, including the Jews, with his incredible political skills. He'll be the one that's able to work this all out. You remember earlier this year, we learned after the rapture of the church, there's going to be chaos in the world. And there's going to be a leader who emerges and will rise to power by bringing peace. This leader, the Antichrist, will come initially as a peacemaker, and use his shrewd communication skills and his negotiating skills to do something that nobody in the world has ever been able to do before, and that's to bring peace in the Middle East. Do we have the slide of God's stopwatch that we've had before? Do you guys remember studying this a few weeks ago? Um, And this illustration from Daniel 9? This man... The Antichrist will confirm a seven-year peace agreement. This is what will start or signal the start of the seven-year tribulation. Remember, that's what will start that stopwatch again for, for Jews. And it's probably during this time of peace that this future, um, this future uh, tribulation temple will be built. The Antichrist will probably guarantee uh, protection for uh, Israel to build it, and the false prophet is going to encourage them to build it, and to reestablish their uh, old way of worship with all their animal sacrifices. But now let me ask you a question. Can the blood of lambs and goats and other animals take away sin? Can it? No. After the death of Jesus on the cross, animal sacrifices are no longer acceptable. God used animal sacrifices in the Old Testament to point the Jews and to people to Jesus, the one, the Messiah who would come and be the one sacrifice that will take away sin forever. And, and it would be a permanent, not just an annual or a, a, one that has to be repeated over and over. He would take them permanently through his death and blood and sacrifice on the cross. So animal sacrifices are no longer acceptable. Jesus is the only sacrifice that God will accept for the forgiveness of sin. So this temple that the Jews will build under the protection and encouragement of the Antichrist and the false prophet with all of its uh, sacrificial rituals will simply reflect a ritualistic dead religion. But the reawakening of interest in the Messiah will make the Antichrist jealous. Because remember, there are 144,000 Jewish evangelists out there who are sealed and protected, and they're giving out the gospel. And so as more and more Jews come to the temple to worship and begin seeking their Messiah, the Antichrist is going to get furious, and he's going to finally make his move. About three and a half years into this seven-year covenant, the Antichrist is going to turn on Israel... He's going to break this covenant and, and uh, stop their worship and stop their animal sacrifices. And he's going to set himself up in the temple as the only acceptable God to be worshipped. So that means this temple will be built and will have to be functioning sometime before the halfway point of this seven-year covenant. So as impossible as it may seem to us today, God says there is going to be a temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. And four people have seen this future tribulation temple, and they spoke about it in the Bible. Jesus saw it, and he said in Matthew 24, 15, he told them when you see the abomination standing in the holy place, meaning the holy place in a temple, he told them to flee to the mountains. Paul saw it, and he said in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, this one who calls himself God will set himself up in God's temple to be worshipped. He's talking about the Antichrist. Daniel saw it, and he said in Daniel 9, 24, this ruler to come, he's talking about the Antichrist, this ruler to come will set up an abomination that causes desolation in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. And then John saw it here in Revelation 11, and he was told to measure it. So there's no doubt that there will be a Jewish temple during the tribulation. And John was given a reed and told to measure the temple and the altar and to count the worshipers there. The fact is, the fact that we're never told what the results of John's measurements show that the purpose isn't so much the size of the temple, but the fact that there is. A temple in Jerusalem. Now, there are a couple of different opinions as to what this measuring signifies. Some commentators say this act of measuring is showing God's claim on it, that He owns it, that despite the evil forces of the Antichrist that are oppressing the city and the Jews, God says, nope, they're mine, and He's going to protect them. Others suggest that the temple and the worshipers are being measured for judgment that's about to come to evaluate their character. And that he's marking out that Jewish remnant who will eventually come to true belief in him. And he's going to protect them from this coming judgment. And that the rest who don't come to believe in Jesus as their Messiah will be found short and come under judgment. And Zechariah prophesied about this in Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, and 14, 1 and 5, if you want to read about it. But we're going to talk more about that later um, as in the upcoming chapters. Now God tells John not to measure the outer court of this temple. This might signify that only the holy place and the holy of holies will be rebuilt. Some architects say that these could be rebuilt without disturbing the Dome of the Rock or the Alaska Mosque. This would allow the various religions to share the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Sharing that religious site could mean that there might not be a wall built around the outer court. But whatever reason, uh, John is told not to measure the outer court because it has been given to the Gentiles. And verse 2 says they will trample on the holy city... For 42 months. Now, how long is 42 months? Do we have that other slide, girl, uh, showing Daniel's seven week? You can see um, there are seven years in the tribulation, okay? And we know that at midway, halfway through that, that's when the Antichrist is going to turn on Israel. So we've got three and a half years in the beginning halfway mark, and we got three and a half more years, okay? So it says they're going to trample on the holy city for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Those of you who can do actual math without a calculator. Three and a half years. All these times are, it's three and a half years or 42 months, it'll be broken down into days. All these are referring to the same time period, okay? This coincides with Daniel 9, as well as what Jesus taught in Matthew 24. Gentiles will control Jerusalem and the temple during the last three and a half years of the the tribulation. The Antichrist will break his agreement with Israel and will use the temple for his own purposes to be worshipped for the last three and a half years. Now sometime during this time, God will anoint two special witnesses who is going to preach his his gospel message from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. Now, Jewish law required the testimony of two people to confirm a fact or to verify truth. And so these two witnesses will confirm God's truth to those living during the tribulation. Now, there's a whole lot of speculation on who these two witnesses will be. Some say it's Elijah and Enoch. Because remember, neither one of them died. They were transported to heaven without dying. Some say it's Elijah and Moses. Because some of the miracles they're going to be able to perform are similar to those that Elijah and Moses were able to do. Elijah and Moses also appeared with Jesus at the Transfiguration. But it's also very possible that these two witnesses will be two men that we've never heard of before that God will raise up and anoint during this time period for this task. The fact is, we aren't told who these witnesses are. And if it was important for us to know, God would have told us who they are. But instead of focusing on and trying to figure out who these two witnesses are, we need to focus on what they do. During this time when the world is overrun with demonic activity and evil and false religion, these two witnesses will perform supernatural signs that will mark them as true prophets of God. And they're going to speak forth God's truth. So no matter who these two men are, the same almighty God who empowered Elijah and Moses will demonstrate his power once again and give people an opportunity to be saved. These two witnesses will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to shine God's light in a dark world despite the powers of darkness doing everything they possibly can to try to stamp it out. And that's what the reference to the two lampstands and the two olive trees is referring to. Now, doesn't this show once again the grace of God during the tribulation period? I mean, he goes to great lengths to reach out to the lost, and he never ever leaves himself without a witness. Now, do you remember what Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1 8? He said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So the church from Acts 1 all the way through Revelation 5 is responsible for evangelizing the world and spreading the gospel and being God's witnesses. When the church is raptured and taken out of the world, then God raises up these 144,000 Jewish evangelists and seals them and protects them to spread the gospel. We saw them in Revelation 7, and we're going to see them again in chapter 14. And God's also going to send these two witnesses and give them supernatural powers and protection to preach preach the truth of judgment and grace for exactly 1,260 days. No more and no less. How long is 1,260 days, girls? Now, I know some of you got your calculators out and calculated that. And you probably came up with 3.4 something, didn't you? Did anybody do that? I knew, I knew some of you would. A Jewish year was 360 days. So if you use their year and calculate, it comes out to three and a half years, 1,260 days. God is precise. So for three and a half years, these two witnesses will fearlessly preach about God's judgment and his wrath and the need for
1: repentance and
0: they're gonna tell people to their faces about their wickedness and sin and warn them of future judgment and they're gonna urge people to repent and turn to Jesus to be saved. And because of this, these two witnesses will be hated and they'll be mocked and cursed and attacked. But when their enemies try to hurt them, what happens? What happens? They just, whoo, and they're turned into a pile of ash, aren't they? You wonder how in the world people could see all of this and not believe the truth and repent and come to Jesus. But remember, Satan is a deceiver. He's a liar. And he's going to cause a strong delusion during this time period. That's what Jesus warned in Matthew 24. He said, don't be deceived. Over and over again, he tells them, don't be deceived. Now remember, a lot of Christians are being martyred during this time period. So the emergence of these two witnesses who are supernaturally protected and can't be killed, well, that creates a problem for those who are operating the antichrist. Uh, world government. Can't you just picture the riots and the picketers out front, especially PETA because of all the animal sacrifices and and they hate these two witnesses because they're telling them to their face about their sin. Well after the first few attempts to stop these two witnesses end in fiery failure nobody's going to have enough courage to stop them. At least not until the Antichrist steps up. And notice that in verse 7, it says that only after these two witnesses have completed their ministry does God remove his protection and his protective hand from them. And it says the beast that comes up from the abyss is permitted to kill them. The witnesses will not die before God determines their work is done. See, everything continues to go according to God's divine plan and God's divine timing. And that's true of us too, ladies. We cannot be taken off this earth until God deems that we have finished the ministry and the purpose that he has for us. We will not leave one minute before or one minute too late. We are to be his witnesses, and he will protect us until he says our ministry and work is finished, and then he'll call us home. Now, the beast from the abyss is another name for the Antichrist, and we're going to see the Antichrist, there are lots of names for the Antichrist, and we'll, I don't know if you want to start a little list or something as we go through the rest of these chapters so that you can kind of keep them straight in your mind, but there are a lot of names that describe him. Um. We'll, we'll see a more detailed description of him when we get to chapter 13. But this is the first time that he's mentioned in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist is going to be a man who Satan will give power and authority to as his chosen man who will become the leader of the world. And as I said before, he'll initially rise to power and prominence as a peacemaker. But when he achieves full power at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, it's then that he's going to start showing his beastly character. This beast from the abyss, or the Antichrist, will be infuriated when he hears these two witnesses preaching about Jesus and repentance, because he hates that. And so he's going to throw all the power of his satanic government into an attack against these two, and God will allow them to be killed. And what does the world do when they're killed? Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, For three and a half days, men from every people, every tribe, every language, and every nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. So their bodies are going to be left laying in the street like dead animals for the whole world to look at. I'm sure they're going to have TV cameras posted on those dead bodies. Now in the Old Testament, leaving a dead body unburied was considered the greatest degradation and humiliation that could ever be shown to anyone. And so this reveals the contempt and the hatred that the world will have for these two witnesses and the God that they represent. And verse 10 continues. It says, the inhabitants of the earth Now, do you remember that phrase? The inhabitants of the earth? Who are we talking about? Who are we talking about? Unbelievers. It says the inhabitants of the earth, the unbelievers, will gloat over these dead witnesses. They're going to be proud of the Antichrist. They're going to be proud that they're following him. Proud of his great power because nobody else could touch these two witnesses. And TV cameras or something similar, I don't know what they'll have then, but they're going to be broadcasting video around the world of the bodies of God's witnesses lying in the street. And it says the people around the globe will celebrate by sending gifts to each other. Think about that. Now notice, this is the only instance recorded in the book of Revelation... Of celebrating or rejoicing on earth during the whole tribulation period. And what are they rejoicing and celebrating? The death of two people. People are going to be so thrilled over the death of these two witnesses that it will be Christmas and Mardi Gras all rolled into one. It will be the devil's Christmas. That shows the real condition of the hearts of these people. There's this hellish, inhumane glee at the death of these two witnesses. And why are they celebrating? Look at the end of verse 10. They're celebrating because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Now, what does that mean that they tormented those who live on the earth? All they did was speak and share the word of God. So what does it mean that they tormented them? Well, remember, to a rebellious, unrepentant person, the word of God is torment to have to listen to. That would be true during the tribulation, but it's also true today, ladies. That's why unbelievers want to do everything they can to silence the speaking of God's truth in our world today. Because it torments them. They don't want to hear it and be convicted of their sin. Remember, the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And so it cuts into the heart of an unbeliever. They can't stand to hear the truth of God when they love their sin. Christians today are often called haters, aren't we? When we share God's truth, we're called haters, and they want to shut us down and silence us and cancel us because it torments unbelievers. Well, the Antichrist and all the unbelievers in the world will think that they have had victory because they finally silenced these two witnesses, and they're not going to have to listen to this convicting messages from God anymore. But the party's going to stop. And the celebration is going to quickly turn to fear when God steps in and breathes life in these two witnesses again. And the whole world is going to be watching in terror as these two lifeless corpses suddenly stand up in full view of the TV cameras or the internet feeds or whatever's going to be on them. And it doesn't say how long they're going to be standing there or if they're going to be walking around. It doesn't say how long. But you know, everybody's going to be—that's there—is going to be watching this, and everybody on their TV or internet is going to be glued and watching this. And then they're going to be, start beginning to ascend into heaven when God calls them home. And people are going to stand there; their partying is over. They're not going to know what hit them. Can you imagine seeing two dead people stand alive? and then ascend into heaven. Notice again, it wasn't until after their testimony was finished that God allowed the beast to kill these two witnesses. But even then, their lives weren't finished. God raised them to life again and called them to heaven. And he'll do the same for us, you and me, ladies. Now, the people in Jerusalem will be staring into the sky... And watching as these two go up in a cloud, and all of a sudden it says, the ground's going to start to shake. And there'll be this great earthquake that's going to cause 10% of the buildings to collapse and kill 7,000 people. The survivors in Jerusalem will be terrified, and they'll give glory to the God of heaven. Now, does this mean that they all put their faith in God? Probably not. Because as a whole, they're scared to death, and they temporarily give God the glory. They may have recognized God's power, but that doesn't mean they received Jesus Christ. But at the very least, many will acknowledge God's hand in these events. Despite the efforts of the Antichrist and the false prophet to promote false religion during this time, God will give a powerful testimony of himself during the the tribulation. Let's never forget that God doesn't want any to perish, but all to be saved. And although many people will refuse to repent during these days, there will be others who do turn to the Lord and be saved. And we know this is true, because when the Lord returns at the second coming, Matthew 25 tells us that Jesus is gonna invite those who have put their faith in him and have believed, who have survived the tribulation, He's going to welcome them into his millennial kingdom. Now, like these two witnesses, we as Christians are called to be witnesses for Christ in our generation. We should always be willing to share the gospel with others, regardless of how they might respond. And never hesitate to speak about how Jesus has changed our lives forever. You might not be an expert on every verse in the Bible, But you are an expert on what Jesus has done in your own life, right? So are you doing that? Are you telling others what Jesus has done in your life? That's what God told us our job is. That's our job assignment. Are you doing it? Well, this morning I thought we'd take just a few minutes to show you what simply sharing your story is. Sharing your testimony for Jesus might look like, and Mary Kay Crambeer, who leads our Bible study group that meets on Thursday nights, is going to come and share her testimony with us, to share what Jesus has done in her life. Now I know it can be very intimidating to come and stand up here, ladies. So will you give Mary Kay a warm welcome? Let me turn. Let me turn me off.
1: Is that better? <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I, I want to preface this a little bit between what Teresa and I talked about. Um, last week, I was asked to give my testimony at, at Leaders, and all the way driving from Carmel to the meeting, I was arguing with the Lord. And if anyone drove next to me, they would have thought I was nuts. So. <laughs> Um, but I was like, no, Lord, this is about you. This is your testimony. This is for you. And I, because I had this, what I called an intrusive thought, that he wanted me to give this testimony in the big group. And so then Monday, Teresa calls me and asks me, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know? I guess maybe it wasn't an intrusive thought. And so um, so here I am, and I Just want you to know that I just love you all, and um, this is just an honor to be here. so. Um, So picture a girl finding her way in the world, always feeling awkward and like she didn't fit in. What is a girl to think about herself when she is taller than her first grade teacher, taller than all the boys in her classes, growing up as a third child with an older sister and older brother, but never really feeling pretty or special, but... Wow, you are so tall. Well, that little girl learned that she could be special by studying really hard to be successful and pleasing those around her by doing and being what they wanted her to do and be. As long as she kept busy and she hid the fact that she always felt like a fraud and never really felt like a success or felt like who she was, She could keep the emptiness and loneliness at bay. This busyness, studying to succeed and working hard to be liked, took her all the way in life to finding herself with two college degrees, a career, a husband, and pregnant to start a family. Why did there still seem to be an unfulfilled thirst and emptiness in her this is where I found myself in the first few years of my marriage with a beautiful, beautiful baby on the way. My ba- daughter was born, and my husband and I decided we needed to go to church because we wanted to bring our kids up in church because that's what good parents do. I had been successful so far by studying hard and working hard to please those around me, so I approached attaining a faith that same way. I signed up for a Bible study that covered the whole Bible in 32 weeks, and you read 80% of the Bible. How surprised was I when I finished that and still felt that longing and still felt empty? So I got busy in the church, led a woman's group, taught Sunday school for the kids, and tried to please those in the church. Still empty, but now super tired, (laughs) by all the busyness of trying to fill an emptiness and a hole that I didn't realize could only be filled by God. At the time, I didn't know, but when God creates us, he plants eternity in our hearts, and that's from Ecclesiastes 3.11. There's a place in our soul, a round hole that only God can fill. The world tries to shove a square peg in there by leading us to think that it's all about success, and going for what you want but it will never fit and we will always be left feeling empty and unfulfilled. God plants eternity because that is what he wants for us to long for and desire for eternity with him. My way of responding to this longing for eternity was to repeat the same behaviors and approach it like I had everything in my life. Be busy with activities seek approval of others, and study hard to succeed. So coincidentally, after my third child was born and I was a stay-at-home mom full-time, a friend invited me to a weekly Bible study. I thought, well, I can do this. I've already done the 32-week study, so at least I won't look like I don't know anything. This study was different, though, because each week a question in the study guide would ask you, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And the lady doing the weekly lecture would ask the same question. I would think to myself, well, my church growing up never asked that, so I don't think that's necessary. I mean, I did grow grow up going to church weekly as a kid, and we've been taking our kids to church too since they were born. I even remember my best friend in 5th grade asking me to go for a hike in a local park where she shared how she had accepted Jesus and he was giving her such a passion and joy in life. Hmm. That's good for her, but you now probably won't work for me. As I got to know the women in my group, sharing real hurts, real happiness and real relationships, I could see that they had something that I didn't have. The hole in their heart was filled with God's round peg. God kept nudging me weakly and chipping away at my pride, but I thought I could get to him by studying him and pleasing others. One week, I finally humbled myself and admitted that this path was not working, and I couldn't create faith or fill that longing. When the leader asked the question that week, I didn't respond with, well, I don't need to do that I responded with yes I want you Lord I need you Lord and please be my Lord and Savior God was faithful he filled my hole it was a gift from him not something that I had to work for but a beautifully wrapped package that I simply needed to open In my excitement to confirm that this had happened for about the next 10 weeks, after that, I mentally opened the gift each time the question was presented. Maybe it didn't take. So one one week, the leader shared with us, you can only open a gift once. After that, give thanks for the first opening. God was saying, I'm here, Mary Kay. Rest and stop trying so hard. I love you, and yes, I died for you. What do you have to do to open that gift? First, I had to agree with Scripture that no matter how good I was, I would never be good enough. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one is perfect, no matter how hard we try. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as said in Romans 3.23. So what, we, what do we deserve for being sinners? Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not physical death, but spiritual death. Being separated from God. Never finding the round peg to fill the hole in our heart. Always being dissatisfied and feeling empty. So what is the gift? It is a gift of grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. We can never be good enough, study enough, try hard enough. We definitely can't be perfect. The gift is that we can have right standing with God and not be separated from him in this life and in eternity. God requires a blood sacrifice as payment for those sins. Romans 5.8 eight But God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did the work. His death covers our sin, so God can come near to us. God is holy, meaning that he can't be around sin or sinners. So since we can't get there on our own, the only way to fill the hole is to accept his undeserved favor. That Jesus offers us by his act his perfectness, and his deep love for us that he acted on by dying on the cross. That is what is so powerful and perfect about God's plan for us. If we accept the gift, we have nothing to boast about. We didn't do the work. Christ did. So what was going on in my heart when I realized this truth? First, I thought, well, I haven't been that bad. Can't we just be partners? (laughs) <laughs> yes God I believe in you but do I really have to admit I can't do this on my own by studying and working hard to do right and he said yes you can't you must believe that to be right with God you have to accept and believe in Jesus in Romans 10:9, the disciple Paul tells us if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead you will be saved That's it. Believe and open that gift of grace. Undeserved favor. No more trying so hard to please everyone. No more looking for the next achievement or thing to make me happy. It's hard to get to a point where we are humble enough to say we can't do it and admit we are wrong. And what we are doing will never get us there. Before this point in my life, I prayed many times. But I never felt God answering me and always felt empty and alone. I started with New Year's resolutions, I will read the Bible, starting with Genesis and not getting very far. But when I finally saw the truth, God reached out and presented the gift to me, a person who had never done enough to earn it. I had to say uncle. After opening the gift, there were no fireworks or grand parade, but as I studied and listened, the words made sense. It was like a light bulb had been turned on. I started seeing God's hand in my life. I began experiencing a desire to please him, no one else. Answers to prayer became clear. This all happened because at that point, when I opened the gift, God filled that round hole with his peg, and he deposited the Holy Spirit in my soul. Over the years of falling back on my human desire to solve things and control situations, I have learned to let go and let God. Those are the times I feel closest to God and have peace that the troubles of today are nothing compared to the joy of knowing that I will be in heaven with God for eternity. Ladies, are you certain that when you die, you will spend eternity with God? Because if you aren't certain, God wants you to be. He loves you more than any earthly present or spouse or child ever will. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will always want you to draw near to him and leave your worries and hurts with him. Satan and the world tell us many lies, that we deserve to be happy. God never promises us to be happy. It is quite the opposite. He says we will suffer and have troubles. Since opening that gift, God has walked with me as I saw my husband struggle through job losses, seen my kids through Many trials and hardships and been with my mom as she left this world to join God in eternity. What do you do with a child of God who has that bent to study and loves to learn new skills? God takes those skills and puts them to use further in his kingdom. He has filled with my heart and confirmed with me that I can be his kingdom builder, cleverly disguised as a wife. A mom, a Mimi, and a computer geek building a website for the very Bible study she joined 20 some years ago. Thank you, and don't leave today without opening the gift God is offering you. Thank you.
0: Glory to God for what he's done In Mary Kay's life And you know what ladies You will bring glory to God Every time you share your story too With others So I hope we're doing that Well I think this is a good place For us to stop Because we'll, it starts another section um, I'm sorry we didn't get all the way done With chapter 11 But we'll pick it up next time But I just want to remind you that Satan's defeat is certain, our victory is assured, and Jesus will reign forever and ever. The question is, where will you be when your time is up? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you accepted that free gift that Mary Kay was talking about? And you don't receive it by being baptized or joining a church or trying to work and do good works and try to be good to earn it. You can only receive forgiveness of your sin when you trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. Because see, when Jesus died on the cross, he took punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. And when you sincerely confess your sin and turn to him for forgiveness, he will forgive you and accept you as his child. So Jesus stands here this morning, ladies, and offers you the gift of his grace and his forgiveness if you're willing to receive it. All you have to do is talk to him right where you're sitting, knowing that he's listening from heaven to your heart. Just talk to him. Why don't we close in prayer? Father, I just thank you for Jesus, for sending him. Thank you for Mary Kay being willing to share her story and give you the glory. And I pray that if there's anyone listening right now who is feeling your call to come and receive forgiveness for their sin, I pray they would stop and step out in faith right now into your open arms and begin to walk as your child for the rest of their lives, following and living for you. And Lord, I pray that we will be faithful to shine your light in a dark world by being your witnesses and sharing the gospel with others, like these two witnesses we've studied about today. Lord, give us the confidence and courage because we know that you have promised you will never, ever leave us. And you'll give us the strength and protection to do whatever you call us to do until that moment that you call us home. So may you be lifted high in us and through our lives. And may we be walking testimonies of what you have done and can do in our lives. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus, our returning King, that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Thanks, ladies. We'll see you next week.